0: Welcome to Growing Our Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 41. I'm your host, Wadol Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actual tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Dustin Service. Dustin, CLU, CFP, CHS, CSC, CPH, and a team at Service Wealth Management are one of the largest independent financial planning firms in Kelowna, BC. They provide custom wealth management services to business-minded clients managing over 200 million in client network in the Okanagan. Dustin has been featured as number one top 40 under 40 leader in 2014 by the Kelowna Chamber of Commerce. Service wealth management or Dustin have been featured on Global News, uh, KelownaNow.com, Kastanet.net for community involvement and client satisfaction recognition. Upon meeting Dustin for the first time, it does not take a person very long to realize that adventure is a major part of Dustin's life. Adventure resides inside his practice with taking roads, less travel in the financial industry, including the use of technology, client experience, processes, including staff and overall business decisions. Lifelong learning is a core belief for Dustin. He strives to acquire new knowledge and is eager to share it to the benefit of his clients and friends. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pavel. Dustin, I'm super excited to have you here. So let's jump in. We'll come back to this road less traveled in industry later, but for now, just tell me a little bit about the business in your own words. So, what do you do, and who do you typically serve?
1: Sure. So I came from a traditional sort of investors group, you know, mutual fund, insurance background, and over the last 14 years, it's evolved to Become a you know a retirement planning practice for a small group of families in the Okanagan, and that's predominantly where I spend most of my time is doing sort of deep financial planning the use of accountants and lawyers and we have uh, in-house realtors in the office but I also have staff that manage a couple blocks Uh, one block is a block of lawyers in the province of BC and legal staff and we provide life insurance investments disability insurance critical illness group benefits to that group and then we have another block that is predominantly business owners and a large contingent of those people are blue-collar business owners in the Okanagan small Business in the Okanagan region is is a big, big driver of the economy, and there's a lot uh, of those people who need advice that aren't pension or
0: union type employees. That makes sense. So on a high level, like if if you got to help us just to understand how you your firm is structured, so how are you licensed right now? You know, the ii work. You know, number of staff, number of clients, you know, average client maybe ADMs, things like that. Whatever you as much as you're comfortable disclosing, really, for the context for the listeners.
1: Sure. So we, we have uh, currently an account minimum of a million. And again, I, I only manage a, s- a small number of families in uh, in the region. So we use CFA designated discretionary managers to manage the money and we do the financial planning part of it for a fee. And I still hold an insurance license. And that allows us still to do the deep insurance planning. And I don't do a lot of group benefits. I farm that out to uh, another group benefit specialist who that's all he does. And we do those on a joint basis. Uh, Typical family, you know, again, AUMs coming the door. We don't uh, do a lot of transactions, but the accounts tend to be larger. The work we do is in depth with the accountant and the lawyer. Do a lot of work in wills, partnership agreements, you know and and what allows us to spend that time and not fear it being not profitable to the business is because the accounts are higher and the fees that we're generating
0: are enough that we can uh, spend a lot of time with with the clients okay that makes sense so this is really interesting so you have sort of three different blocks of business and we'll we'll dive into it so that's that's really interesting and you're really focused definitely focused on larger accounts so again we'll come back to it but in terms of your how you end up becoming an advisor i know you know from our Conversations earlier that you started your career in, I think, civil engineering, right? So you're engineering by trade. How did you end up becoming an advisor? If you could take me back to your early days.
1: Oh, okay. so, well, I know you got a couple minutes for the podcast, so I'll, <laughs> share, I'll share with it. But it was, uh, you know, I invested in my first mutual fund at 19. I still remember I went with my mom. She had a guy. His name was Murray. Great guy. I put in uh, $1,000, and about four months later, it was about 920 And uh, you know, I, I just pulled it all out and said, you know, that's not for me. And, and so then two years later, I had, I f- you know, finished my diploma in engineering. I had gone off to Calgary. You know, this is early 2000s, you know. So, you know, in, in Kelowna, full-blown engineers, you know, with the sunshine tax around here would only make the same as a technologist in, in Alberta. And with all the overtime, you actually, it was quite lucrative. So when I went out there, you know, to Calgary, I met a certain group of guys. There was four guys that we'd meet every Sunday and we would talk about stocks. And And there used to be a thing called the Value Line Booklets. And the Value Line Booklets, I, I think Value Line was funded by Warren Buffett. I, I could screw that up, but I, I thought it was, or he owns it now. And it was these little leaflet booklets that I think every, every week it came out with two or 300 stocks in it. And we would just, the four of us would sit at Starbucks, have two or three coffees on a Sunday afternoon and thumb through it and flag different stocks that we thought, you know, based on our reading, based on research that we thought were interesting or companies that we just liked. And then we would compare and try and find a few that each other all flagged, and uh, it didn't always happen. But then we would go into deeper research, you know, during the week. And you know, when I was engineering, it was you know, you'd sit at your desk and you'd be doing drafting or project management. And then on one other monitor, I would be in my Scotia Bank line of credit, and I had a Scotia like direct investing account, and I would just max out this fifty grand line of credit, and then get out. And sometimes it'd be hours, sometimes it would be a couple of days. And I seem to convince myself that I made more than I lost, even though I got creamed a couple of times. And now looking back, I think how risky that actually was, but it didn't seem risky at the time. So again, I'm in the engineering world. I'm working. I'm researching stocks, and I'm helping people around the office set up our Sun Life Group RSP plan. And again, this is back in like you know 2001, 2002. The tech crash had just happened. Mm-hmm. You know, people are setting up their RSPs, and over the next you know year or two, the investments seem to go up, which was just coming out of the bottom. And people were saying, you know, hey, you know, thanks, that's awesome. We picked the right stuff, and we're talking very small dollars with a lot of these people. But I loved working with people. I loved being fascinated by the investment world because, similar to engineering, investment world, I don't think can actually be figured out. Like it can't be like in in engineering, you could figure out you know the load that a bridge could take, or you could figure out you know certain things. But the, the the stock world. I do have sort of a curiosity there to figure it out and that will take years and decades to, to get better at, which I'm, I'm excited
0: about and interested in. Excellent. Okay, so I didn't know that about day trading experiences and so on early in the career. Okay, Joan Soda. Joan Soda was my first <laughs> trade I ever made. All right. So let's talk about uh, a little bit more about, you know, how you approach advising a certain class, right? Because, you know, I mean, investment world, it's definitely, as you said, it's definitely, it's a different problem than, you know, the typical analytical equations that you're solving as an engineer, because, you know, you always can figure it out based on because, you know, that's physics, right? Because if physics doesn't change, I mean, investment world is much more complex. In that regard, it's a different nature of a problem. But, uh, you know, how do you really think about serving your clients? So how do you approach advising your clients? What is your process? Especially because, honestly, you're almost running three different businesses at the same time. That's a great question.
1: I think if it it was really distilled down, it's like we put ourselves in their shoes. You know, I've got engineers that are clients. You know, and again, I come from an engineering background that I'm a tough sell myself. And I like things to be laid out simply, I like them to be laid out visually. So we go to great lengths. And I spent a ton of time building, you know, various little software pieces that allow the client to see their their financial picture more clearly, uh, and and quickly. Because if someone's thought about, you know, I'm going to spend some time and and get into my financial plan. They usually want to make a decision about something and then they get out. They don't usually... Meddle in their stuff for a long time, and so when that motivation and inspiration is there for a client, you need to be able to show them something quickly so they can make a a quick, prudent decision. So in our process, we do have, you know, we use something called the dashboard or a financial dashboard, and that is a one-page visual of their their plan. That took a little while, but again, my background is engineering. I love pictures, and I love to be able to see what I'm deciding on and how it affects multiple things. And, you know, a recent example is I bought a new truck about a year ago and the poor salesman, he thought it was a quick sale just because my father-in-law had bought two trucks that same month. And he said, hey, if you want to get a good deal on a truck, you should buy one too. So I went in and the salesman thought basically he could just write me up an order and and sell me whatever you know that was that was like a month later he figured out that that wasn't the case because I I wanted to see the options and I wanted to know about you know various items so I could financially digest what I was about to purchase so you know leading that back to clients putting yourself in their shoes and thinking you know, what's the easiest way for someone to understand this? The other part of it is, you know, my, my particular character, and I'm sure a lot of other advisors out there that are ethical and you know have a moral, a good moral compass, is it would kill me to know that a client that I had done a plan for or sold something to, you know, say they were talking to their neighbor, a new guy moves in and the neighbor's a financial advisor. And he, you know, they're sitting around the pool one day and then the neighbor who's the new financial advisor comes over to my client's house and my client tells them what I, I put in place for them. And the new neighbor, the financial guy, I was thinking, what the hell is that guy thinking? that would be not good. That would kill my personality. So we we go to to great lengths to vet out all the potential options. A lot of what if planning, you know, I got staff in here that we brainstorm who are also licensed and, and they're different personalities than me and say like, well, what would happen if this happened? What would happen? And then we make a decision and we have all the backdrop figured out so that when we go to a, a meeting here's the recommendation and whatever questions they have we can dive deeper into the you know the stack
0: of paper of of options that we vetted out Makes sense. So I mentioned actually in the introduction that uh, you often pick the road less traveled, and, and I think you mentioned staff and involving them in different decisions, uh, in business decisions as well. So can you talk about about, about that? About you know, what is what is your approach to working with your staff, and uh, how do you integrate them in your in decisions in, in, within the business? And and so, you know, what are some of the some of the outcomes of, of that process?
1: Sure. So for
0: the last five or
1: six years, I've included staff in knowing what the numbers are of the business. Including sales, commission, and getting them, you know, understanding the expenses, you know, because most of them don't. You know, we the big joke around the office right now is, you know, the coffee maker broke two months ago. And so I we brought one in because there's a huge debate about should it be a Keurig because that causes cancer and plastic. And no, not a Keurig. So then, anyways, we got our old traditional pot of coffee that I brought from home and you know, they don't understand like, they're like, well, we want this kind of coffee maker. That's not a Keurig. And that's the high end. Well, that's a couple thousand dollars. So, you know, including them in the numbers, they could kind of help make decisions and help drive the culture to, to what's the best case. So maybe there's an alternative to that coffee maker, you know, and and actually the coffee maker we got is a Keurig, but Keurig does make a stainless steel insert that you just put grinds into. So, you know, that was a $200 problem and everyone's happy and they're healthy. So, you know, that's one particular thing. But the, the big, I think, you know, where your question's coming from is about two years ago, I wanted to rewrite my business plan. And so the options are, is you know, rewrite a business plan and throw it down on the boardroom table and say, you know, everyone get on board. This is where we're going but I thought it would be exciting to hire consultants to purposefully take almost a year to write this business plan. And so he used my old business plans that I had. He used some new goals that I had. Mm -hmm. He included it and we met him two hours every second week with the whole team. Mm -hmm. And he, he took us through an exercise, and it's you know I had read the book long time ago, but never never used it in a consultant setting. And it's called the business model generation. Uh-huh. That's a big thick. You're familiar with it, or it's a it's a big thick uh-huh. with a workpad kind of of boxes. And again, back to visual. Uh-huh. I like visual. And most people can understand visual easier. And so he compartmentalized. You know, who are our key partners? What are the costs? You know, implications of the business? Where does the revenue come from? What's our value proposition? So you know, probably it took a month, you know, or two meetings, at least two hours and homework Mm -hmm. to get the value proposition done of like what, you know, what it is we do. And it's still, it's funny because it's not ever cut, you know, set in stone. And I think as advisors, we all, you know, and again, engineer brain, I want like something set in stone. A lot of my staff are female, they want trajectory, like, but as an entrepreneur, things swerve and bob and weave, and you kind of just like, you know, I don't, when I play golf, I never hit it always up the middle of the fairway. It's all over the place. And I think that, you know kind of is the same in a lot of people's business so with with the consultant he had the staff basically put their fingerprints on the business plan and you know we identified and he would give them homework and they would have to like you know by the next week come up with these six questions answered and you know what do they enjoy doing and and what do i think are the the best profit centers and what does the other sales staff think are profit centers and then you know, out of the list, distill down to the, the the ones that we think together are the, the best. Part of that same process was I had him go and interview 55 of my clients. And so he would interview them and ask them, you know, simple stuff like, you know, are you happy with service wealth management? Yes. You know, would you, would you refer them to a friend that needed financial help? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we would. Have you ever referred Service Wealth? Oh no, I haven't. Was like, well, why not? And so that was, you know, that was one piece where you know he identified out of multiple meetings with people that, you know, maybe they just weren't comfortable in doing a direct. Hey, you know, some people are more comfortable, clients more comfortable saying, you got to go talk to this guy. Others aren't. So what he identified is they didn't have enough conduits to make easy referrals. So you know, little things like in a newsletter we'd send out we'd have a call to action last sentence saying if you've had a recent conversation with a client and you want to help them forward this email you know or share this article with them or you know little stuff like that you know our social media pasted in our links of our email signature Mm-hmm. Also, there's a whole list of other stuff that he identified as like easy ways to make a referral, and then it led to a whole another thing, which is the social marketing, which we're big on. Uh, I'm not a big asker of referrals. I'm more of a long, kind of tedious, you know, play golf with someone four or five times, and then somehow we get talking about business, and then you know things can go quickly at that point. But I, I don't ever really bring it up. But so that's what what James has done is we interview the clients. He helped. You know write the business plan with the staff and we identified a number of things that i thought were important or things we've done like that always Uh that you know it's just the business has changed and it was time to let them go and for staff that was awesome because again as entrepreneurs we have a lot of good ideas and we have even more great ideas And so you have a great idea, you layer it on, you're like, well, this would be great. You layer it on, you layer it on, but then you're not shedding some of the bottom stuff. And before you know it, you've got so many things to do, so many processes, so many touch points, so many this, so many that. It's so hard. To train new staff. It's so hard to keep going myself so that I'm a good leader and people are like, oh wow, yeah, he's doing it. Cause then I start to slip. They start viewing that like, oh wow, if he's not doing it, then I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. And so it just spirals. So now, like I would say, in the last three years, I feel like we've cut so much off that it almost actually is a little bit scary that you're 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 doing less and less. And when I say less and less, I mean like marketing efforts. Extra touch points up above and beyond, sort of the four review meetings we do a year, uh, all that stuff. And the other thing was, James asked the clients, uh, and I'm referring to James, the consultant who went and interviewed the clients. He asked them a lot of stuff of like what they value. You know, and here I am thinking it's the birthday cards and it's, you know, all this stuff. But really, what they said is, Dustin gets back to us in a timely manner and he has an answer that we're looking for. So it had nothing, it's just like, we try to get back to people in 24 hours. It's right. It says it right on our website, maybe 48 max, but if nothing else, we're letting you know, Hey, we're on to the question. We're doing it where I get tons of emails from accountants Mm -hmm. who have financial, who have clients with financial advisors. And the email will be like, the series will be a, an email to the accountant or to the financial advisor from the account. Hey, Mr. Financial Advisor, can you please send me one, two, three, three questions. Mm-hmm. The advisors are getting back to them like two weeks later, no acknowledgement in between two weeks later, and they've only answered two of the questions. And the one that they missed is the most important one. So, you know, like little stuff like that, that's what clients really are, are missing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm stereotyping a bulk group, but it's, that's where I think advisors can add a lot of value is simply doing, you know, helping the client in the moment they need it. And that doesn't mean
0: taking a week to get back to someone. That's fantastic. So, I mean, first of all, kudos to you to actually engage on a journey for, you know, for 12 months to actually review your business. And of course, I mean, engage even a consultant, because I mean, that's, you know, just, a lot of the business owners would feel that they, you know, they, their ego wouldn't allow them to, for example, hire somebody else because no, no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm running the business. I need to know, and uh, I need to be doing this. So, so that's 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 awesome. And uh, the other thing is, you know, I, I love the fact how you are able to involve your staff and, and bring them really show them show the numbers and, and really strategize with them. The third thing is that you know we cut out that looks like you. are cut out and simplified a lot of the processes and I was just looking I was trying to remember a quote Michael port I think said that the essence of strategy is figuring out what not to do right so mm-hmm. you know what we are not going to be doing and and, uh, and really focusing on what matters so that that's all that's, that's that's all really really positive and great so were there any like if you're going to simplify you know, I think you covered a lot of ground right now in terms of the business plan but if you're going to bring it back to basically you know one or two mi- the biggest most impactful outcomes of the of the business plan, like how how did it change your business? What would you say were one or two things that... Impacted in what way? like Positively, right? So I mean, just positive impact on the business. I mean, some of the changes you've done as part of the new business plan or the improved business plan that positively impacted, impacted the business.
1: I would say, you know, going through that, I now have a, a good understanding of of business in general. So most of my clients, you know, again, the the predominant bulk of them are business owner. And then I've got that block of lawyers. So there are running businesses. So now when we're going and we're talking to clients, we are talking on a level that is business minded first, financial planning second. And we're talking about business issues and, you know, going through the business plan, with my staff, with a consultant who is asking me hard questions as the leader of the firm. And most of the advisors listening are probably leaders of their teams or the firm, unless they work at a bank where there's a manager above them or some sort of firm where there's a manager above them, no one's going to ask the hard questions. So, you know, two key things, business consultant and a therapist, which I'm super, (laughs) you know, I'm I say that in in seriousness because no one asks you hard questions about your business, no one challenges you about your beliefs. I don't mean religion, I just mean about, you know, what beliefs you have pertaining to marketing. You're like, "Well, this is the way this works and I should do it this way." Well, you know, maybe that's not the case and having someone qualified to ask you those questions is very powerful. It, you know, all the books are written all today about comfort zone, get out of your comfort zone. Well, I'll tell you as a, you know, you mentioned ego, it's like as an ego sales person, you know, or a, a business owner who think, you know, you, you've got it figured out. That's a very humbling experience. And it, and it really is. I find it quite exciting and get excited sharing it with people encouraging them to do it because for one, I, I don't know if it's cost ego, I don't know what it is, but but all that consultant or all a therapist needs to do is say one thing to change sort of the direction and it opens up new new realms you know so whatever the hourly fee is just bite off it in blocks that you can afford and and go for it because i do think it can improve people's businesses and the improved business starts with improved thinking you know the business does start in your head in the leader's head
0: Awesome. Okay, so enough of the business plan. So let's talk about just some of the ways how uh, you work with clients, because you know, they're business owners and they're lawyers as well. So in terms of, I think you have a quite a unique approach how you work with lawyers. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Can you just break this down, basically how you know how you're working, how you're working with them, and how did it all start? Actually, how, how did you actually evolve in in that in that direction to serve legal um, law firms?
1: Sure. So the lawyers in Canada are part of the uh, what's called the Canadian Bar Association. So they get called to the bar and and there's a not-for-profit insurance platform that lawyers can get insurance from. And when you take the profit out of insurance products, it makes the rates for the client very cost effective. So again, I have uh, there's myself and a partner who, who manages Vancouver and the island and, and kind of lower mainland area. And for the rest of the province of BC, that's that's what me and my team manage, and we've managed that for uh, almost 10 years. And it's an association plan, so most advisors would know what that, that is, where it's not individual, it's not group. It's an association plan built from the Canadian Bar Insurance Association, and it's now called Lawyers Financial, is what the, the company is called. And so we, again, after 10 years where there's not many law firms in BC that don't know about us, but we still do the same. I take, you know, a lawyer that's going to buy a, you know, $40 a month term life insurance policy. We still take every client through that dashboard process I, I mentioned earlier which we've got pads of paper on our desk that are made with these, you know, unique dashboards.
0: So how do you do this? So when you, let's say, meet a new lawyer, like, well, I mean, maybe there's a lot of lawyers that don't know about you, but let's say you have a conversation, how do you bring this up for them? So because it's a
1: visual picture on our, and again, when, so typically we would get a call Mm -hmm. into the office or, you know, I do have a, a staff member that actively calls out, And it's more review, like, do you want to review? Because we have a lot of clients. And then we're calling non-clients just saying, you know, hey, do you know we deal with, you know, four of the partners in your office and you're the only one we don't deal with? Do you want a second opinion? Do you you know what? What can we help you with? But once that client, you know, say someone calls in and they said, I got your name from so-and-so, I want to talk to you about a million dollars of life insurance. I just got a mortgage and a baby or something. So we would immediately ask them for permission for sort of five or seven minutes on the phone and we would go to our dashboard pad and we would just start filling it out. And it's, it's like your typical fact find, just... A little bit easier to flow because we don't just ask, what's your name? What's your birthday? What's, you know, ha- hammering them just with like static questions. We make it a conversation. We ask them, you know, oh, do you have a law work? And so then that leads to conversation about partners. And then do you have any staff? And so we're kind of talking about that. And then, you know, do you have a spouse? Is she a, is she a, a non-voting shareholder on your corporation? And so then it's like you morph from spouse to kids. You're talking about kids, and what does she do for work, and and so, and where do you guys spend time on the weekends, and you know, so all those little buckets are on this sheet of paper, and then and then we work our way over to you know deeper questions, which is like, what kind of insurance do you have now? What are your investments? Where are the investments? How risky are the investments? Uh So again, we used to have a deep fear and it was an obstacle with staff having them ask these questions because they thought, well, who's going to, like the first time meeting, no one's going to tell us that. Just over time and and having the right... Flow through the dashboard, almost all we don't ever, you know. I I say maybe 1% of people will put up a roadblock in that first call and say, Why do you need to know this? And at that point, it's like, Well, if you've got 4 million of investments, then maybe you don't need a million dollars of life insurance. And so then, oh, okay, well, no, I don't have 4 million of investments. And then I have 200,000. So then it's just where there's only five or six probably spots you'd ever get bumps in the road on that. But now we just get all that information in seven minutes from from meeting them so from there that diagram becomes the cornerstone of sort of compliance because there's an area on there for you know what they need the reason they need it how much there's an area there where I put my action steps for like what quotes are needed Mm -hmm. and the various kinds of quotes so once I do that diagram and I don't do them a lot mostly Megan in my office who's an associate uh, or partner she is the one that. Mostly does them. Uh, I do do them, and if I was doing them myself, or Megan would then give them to another staff member who scans them in and creates them like a file opening process. And there's, you know, various things that that happen there. But and that that diagram is saved, and then that becomes an annual review piece. We do write, you know, 50 page financial plans using Razor software, but uh, most people that, that don't need a big plan just say, hey, if we just update our dashboard every year, our net worth is increasing, the rate of return is is growing at a reasonable and, and we're not paying exorbitant fees, then we're happy. And after the dashboard is done, it's very easy to see and for the client to see the gaps in their plan.
0: Right. So once you have, once you see those gaps in your plan, then of course you can provide solutions to those plans. Okay. I don't know if I remember this correctly or not, but I, I think also part of the process was basically approaching businesses, especially maybe the law firms with uh, just showing them that uh, you know we've worked with a lot of law firms. So we have a lot of data on you know, what would be a a, a well-functioning law firm looking like and we can compare sort of, sort of where you stack up on, on the spectrum and of course people are you know interested in this kind of information. Is this what you do with the business owners or with law firms as well?
1: We've started it with law firms. Again, just as you mentioned, we've got a lot of data in 10 years. I know good law firm financial statements you know when we do disability insurance we get all the the tax information and financial statements and i see the good ones the bad ones and then i correlate it to you know a lot of these lawyers i will meet and i go to their offices and i would see kind of what's going on so we we would take that that's an extra service above and beyond sort of any insurance planning that's a you know, fee engagement like a consultant and again, we have a consultant on staff who would go to the office, gather all that data, then bring that back. And you know part of my job is to go and you know we pull data from a few different websites, and we lay their financial information on sort of seven key metrics like revenue, staff costs, management wages, office expenses, and we lay it against in British Columbia what typical law firms are doing—the middle, the top, you know, on the sort of the bottom—and we lay theirs beside it, so they can see exactly where they fall with like we're spending too much on staff or we're not spending enough classic for, for lawyers. They work a ton. They work a ton of hours, you know, they make you know reasonably good money. And, you know, so if I see someone like that, that's sort of late forties, early fifties, you know, spending time with the family, they're really realizing it is important. Their staff costs are say 21% of revenue and knowing they work so much, I might tell them, Hey, you know, what would this look like if you hired another person for 40 K a year? You know, if an average law firm, you know, let's say 30 to 35% or maybe 28, mm-hmm. maybe that 40 grand only puts them at 33%. So it's like, okay, but that person, that extra person for 40 K a year would give you less it could be more life bandwidth instead of work you know they would take on some of the work and give you more of a work-life balance or work self-life balance and that that's key to be able to do that with with clients because it takes a bit of the unknown and the fear out they're like oh i could never afford another staff it's like well here's you know and again i'm talking a lot for for james who's, who's now in our office doing the consulting and 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 he takes my sort of financial projections and uses it in a consultative
0: approach. That's perfect, and I really find that this is just really ingenious approach because you go really deep into uh, the clients that you serve. I mean, you mentioned business owners understanding their business, talking really with them, just the, the, the way they, they they would understand you. And and the same, you're doing you know a lot for for those law firms. So you're actually providing a lot more value just beyond like even, the, even before getting to financial planning or, or wealth management, you've provided a lot of value. So that's something that just really puts you apart from, and you've been you know becomes you stand out from from for other firms so this is this is fantastic um so in terms of your your you know how clients typically find you do you find you know you receive more referrals right now or do you still do you know marketing or uh, acquire clients by just certain campaigns that you run at this point is this more I, i'm trying to really understand whether is this more inbound or
1: outbound at this point mm-hmm. uh it's more inbound inbound on the business owner's life insurance block inbound referrals on the retirement planning and investment side Mm -hmm. on the, the lawyer's financial side, it's probably 50 50. We actively, you know, send out newsletters Then we call on the newsletters. You know, we will do a, a disability blast, you know, on disability insurance or when was the last time you reviewed your definitions of your, you know, your individual plan and your group. And do you know how it integrates? And then we'd have someone phone you know, 10 calls a day, nothing crazy, but, you know, as much as people say 10 calls a day, would be so easy that with all the follow-up and we keep notes in our software of like what happened on the call, if you left messages, you know, so if the person calls back and gets a different staff member, that person can open, you know, we call them opportunities, but open an opportunity card, see why that person was called. Oh, you know, you know, XYZ employee was calling you about this, you know, did you want to book a meeting or did that, you know, cause any questions? to come up and we find that is getting less and less successful the outbound calls are i'm undecided if that is uh profitable business still obviously new leads but it's getting it used to be way higher we used to be able to make a lot more calls that turned into things now i don't know if it's the pressure of people buying stuff online i i don't know what it what it sort of is
0: the market is definitely changing and the consumer behaviors are changing. So that's part of it, right? I, I see that advisors uh, typically do a lot less uh, outbound. Uh, and if it's outbound, it's really, 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 very really focused. And once they find success, they really try to go uh, deep into that area. So it's, it's kind of, it, com- it confirms basically what other people are doing. So You've, you've done a lot of, I mean, it's been, you know, 14 years and it's, you've done a lot of work, a lot of experiments, you know, business plans. So there was a lot of things that went into building the business and, and you're running a very successful business right now. So what do, what do you think made you successful in building your practice? Like what's some of the things that personally you think that helped you to, to make this business a success?
1: I was always a believer of the more designations you had early on, you would always be marketable. So, you know, I would I would say that the bulk of the early on success was, was done by me, but it it, it was uh, at a firm where I had two great mentors who were sort of 10 years ahead of me in the business. And they would utilize some of the designations that I had at that time as sort of a planning, you know, a paraplanner, an advanced case court, you know, planner, whatever you want to call it you know i had all these different titles along the way just to uh you know just because but at the same time i worked with them and was exposed to a lot of large files or more complicated files not necessarily large but i got exposure to how to work with an accountant how to work with a lawyer you know a lot of time i had spent was in co opco family trust and how insurance fits in there and where do investments fit in and Uh, So a lot of time, you know, was spent doing that. And with those two individuals who were able to sort of stretch my brain on what was possible, because the the hardest part, like for a new advisor to get into the business now, or even like, you know, going into a bank or, you know, a a firm where you've got sort of salary and a set path, Uh uh, you know, I I can't really comment on that because I never did it. But to go down the independent channel and be your own sort of boss right out of the gate and and, you know, work on an all commission basis. Mm -hmm. I don't know how someone new would be able to do that without finding mentors and and getting ingrained in some sort of culture, because, you know, you just. Don't know what you don't know at that point, and you might think you know a, a big case is something that's outside your budget. And when you're young or you know, middle age or whatever your income, you know, everyone comes from different parts, but you may think, wow, this would be a big file, I don't know if I could ever sell that because I couldn't afford it myself. Whereas when you're exposed to bigger stuff, you realize that people think different than you do, so you need to like separate from what your own. Restrictions are and and be able to advise on the core facts as best you can for that person's you know that client situation. So you know I think that those you know again my you know it wasn't all them, but I definitely was exposed to things and got a, a mentorship and then hustled to make myself
0: valuable that I got brought into files. Okay, that makes sense. So that's actually one of my questions. You know, tips for your advisor journey in the industry, and you actually covered that. So that's that's great. So. On the flip side, so what do you think is, you know, what what challenges did you have? What were some of the biggest challenges or or what do you find really most difficult around in in this business of advising clients? Well, it's finding new clients. It's it's always, I think a lot of advisors
1: would say that's probably the, the position, you know, we all, you know, or, you know, most advisors are probably good sitting down with a client and having a conversation. You know, maybe they're good planners or maybe they're good at hiring out the planning. So those two things, you know, that's, that's not easy, but that's quantifiable. Finding new leads at a rate that you're happy with. Is harder, and especially in the, the early years, that's that's because that leads to cash flow. And you see a lot of advisors get into the business, and then after a few years, it's like they just can't. They got families, or they they just they're, the income's not meeting their expectations. But I really think you know I got told a long time ago that you're going to be underpaid for for five years, and you're going to be overpaid or well paid for the rest of your life. I'm not sure that's really true. It's probably more like eight years you feel more secure. <laughs> And and that's you know I would just sort of leave it at, at that. But it, it it took probably eight years mm-hmm. to get to a point where. You've just got scale. You've got enough, you know, on the life insurance block, you got enough previous sales down the the chute that people are doing stuff. They're upgrading their house, they're getting a new child, they're getting a bigger policy. Maybe they got more cash flow, they could convert to a a permanent product. Or, you know, now they're ready to buy disability insurance because they went out on their own. Or they, you know, it's just this stuff happening that you don't have to grind out every lead. And then the investments. You know, I've done from day one, all front end, you know, fee for service type stuff. So no upfront commission. So to build that block on paper from revenue, it was a lot of work to get to a point where those monthly checks actually were material. And I think a lot of guys just can't, they just can't do it or they just can't see the the future. But now, you know, it's a really good spot. You've got great clients that you build great relationships with that you want to spend time with. And for that, they, you know, pay you a fee to, to make sure their plan's on track.
0: That's great. I mean, I'm glad that you're talking very openly about, you know, just that it took a while to get to the point to be comfortable, right? Because, you know, a lot of people would be sort of tempted with being in this industry, just hoping for, you know, massive payouts very quickly. I mean, and again, that's a distinction for you. If you want to work for, for a firm, for example, there's nothing wrong with, for example, as you said, joining a firm and, and, and working with mentors. I think that's a great way of, of getting into the business, especially when you're green, when you don't know anything about, you know, we, we barely know some, some technicalities about, about your profession right you haven't actually put this in practice and you definitely you don't know anything about running business. Uh, it's a business that's definitely a good approach but then you have an option you can stay with you know, with that situation and you can potentially have a nicer salary or increased salary or you can venture on your own and of course if you have family if you have other circumstances that's going to be harder so I, I really appreciate that so yeah so uh, Dustin I think we've covered a lot of rent here so I know you've uh, you know you've, uh, you're you doing a lot of different projects in your business you've shared some of the business planning projects and outcomes but as we're posting wrapping up here. So what are some of the projects that are your most excited to your business right now? Just looking, you know, next six months, next 12 months. Is there anything exciting? Yeah,
1: Technology. I think trying to find ways to automate a lot of decisions and inputs, kind of like Elon Musk with sort of voice to text in email, which already exists, but then taking it a little bit, you know, a step further, you know, using websites to curate content for social media. That's a big one and good content. Client management systems, very key. I think there's a lot of duplication and relooking at things and not a lot of leverage that that advisors are doing. With technicalists, software or CRMs so again, I think that's a big key to the future. And, and before, I used to think you used to have have all this staff, but realistically, I think you could run a pretty large operation with very minimal staff and still provide a high level of service. I think where guys go wrong is they try and automate everything, and clients still like to talk to a human. They usually like talking to the guy who has his name on the sign. So you know, there's if that's all I did all day, that would be great. If this doesn't work out that way. But that's what I would strive to be is literally, you know, calling, talking, meeting clients on a one-on-one and everything else is happening
0: from a team level or a software is taking care of it. That's a great point. I mean, you can—you have to use technology in a way so you can scale, right? So it's a good idea to look at, you know, some of the activities that take a long time. They're repeatable. Things that, for example, you can, you can put technology in place, but don't expect that, you know, you're not going to be having to touch uh, anything because you know, there's some opportunities for you. I mean, there's some, you know, maybe having a fly client call, maybe that's, you know, of course time taken out of their schedule, but there's also an opportunity there. So I'm glad that you to sort of stress that out. So Dustin, this podcast is all about uh, growing your practice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Let's just focus on one thing. Well, I don't know. I just, I think beyond what you just said, <laughs> well, yeah,
1: Tim Ferriss, I think has a, he's a guy that wrote the Four Hour Work Week and the Four Hour Chef and Tools of Titans. But he he had a line that said it was something like it was like you know take the word impossible out of the equation and just like write down you know what if we blank and I do this with the staff like what if we got to a billion dollars you know and so you're you're having a complete unobstructed fantasy about something in the business what if we didn't have to sign with ink another piece of paper. And it was like, okay, yeah, that, that'd be awesome. And so, you know, what if, and then get the staff and the lead, the leader just brainstorming, get it all down, and then just manifest off of those things and try and find one that, you know, maybe it's got legs or is you know easier to obtain or that you see that would have a big impact and could be done reasonably quick with the resources that you have. And then focus on that, try it and maybe it doesn't work. And then go back to the list and you know keep keep working that and keep working your your centers of influence to to get the referrals.
0: Awesome. So just continue constant improvement here. So Dustin, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, how do they do that? What's the best way to reach you right now? You could check out
1: our website. It's Service Two S's or you know just shoot us an
0: email off that, or look us up on Google. All right, let's do that. We'll link it up in the show notes here. Okay, awesome, Dustin. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Pavel. that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes, because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.